Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times in Bloomington, along with Mary Catherine Carmichael. And we have one guest today. Mark Harris is here. Mark is a former environmental columnist and author of the book, Grave Matters, A Journey Through the Modern Funeral Industry to a Natural Way of Burial. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. Or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. Mark, welcome to the program. Hi, nice to be here, Bob. Thanks. Thanks, thanks, for, thanks for joining us. Mary Catherine. Absolutely. Hey, Bob. I got a question for you before we get started. Yes. Do you know who Jay Sterling Morton is? No. He is a news, was a newspaper <laughs> editor in 1874, and you know what he did? No. He, he was a pioneer in Nebraska and lamented the lack of trees, and so he started Arbor Day. Is that right? The, and today is Arbor Day. Today is Arbor Day. So, Arbor you know, Day. it's a nice tie-in with the green burials. But Absolutely. there you it go. Is. One newspaper editor can change the world. <sighs> Thank you. Thank you for quizzing me, but making me look kind of dumb. I don't know more than you do very often, uh, so I'm yeah, pretty proud uh, yeah. right I'm now. Very, very <laughs> well, thanks for that. It is Arbor Day. And, it Mark, Day. It, it's a busy weekend here. I, we have to say, Mary Catherine and I last night were at a benefit for the – Monroe County Humane Association, there's a big benefit tonight for lotus, the lotus, mm-hmm. edible lotus. There's a big benefit tonight for uh, rhinos. It's a big weekend. It's a big weekend. Yeah. And then you're here for to talk with the, the folks from the, the local group about natural burial. That's, that's, right. that's their annual meeting. That's right. Correct. Mm-hmm. And Tomorrow. Carol, mm-hmm. Carol Seaman is uh, joining us, probably not on the air, but she's joining mm-hmm. us here, here today. Mm-hmm. So explain a little bit about, uh, before we get into the topic, uh, right. and we'll give opportunities to do this later, I know you're... There are other places to meet you today and tomorrow. Uh, tonight, you're signing a book, signing your book? That's right. I'm signing a book. I uh-huh. believe it's 530 um, in, the, in the atrium okay. uh, by Howard's Bookstore. Okay. And they have very graciously uh, bought some books out. Uh, so I'd be happy to speak to folks uh, about Green Burial. We should say it's the atrium of Fountain Square. Fountain Square, Fountain Square that's right. Mm-hmm. Um, so signing books there and, and perhaps giving a small talk. And then tomorrow from, uh, from 10 to noon... There's the annual um, meeting of the Funeral Consumers Alliance, and after a short meeting, uh, I'll be uh, giving a presentation on natural burial, uh, including a lot of pictures. Uh, the book does not uh, does not include pictures, um, and this is my opportunity to show people literally what uh, what various natural burials look like, and I think it's a it's a compelling. Um, alternative to the book. Mm-hmm. Okay, now, so the, the broad topic today is, is natural burials, green burials. I think you said that you'd prefer not to call it green burial. Uh, right. I think uh, green burial restricts what this is all about. I mean, certainly the strategies that I look at in the book, cremation, burial in uh, rural land, on rural property, burial in some of these natural cemeteries, uh, you know, in a reef ball, which we can talk about, uh, burial at sea. I mean, those all, most of them have a net benefit for the environment. But I think restricting it just to the environment, uh, uh, you know, brings green burial up a little bit short. Green burials are relatively inexpensive. They're running hundreds, maybe a couple of thousand dollars versus $10,000 on average for your standard burial. Um, and uh, it's really a return as much as anything to tradition. We used to bury people in very simple ways, used to lay them out uh, at home, used to bury them on the back 40. Uh, you would hire the local carpenter, perhaps, to build a plain pine coffin, uh, and you would inter a body in a green setting without a burial vault. Uh, we did this for at least 100 years in this country. So uh, that's green, but it's much more than green. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, 
Then let me give the phone numbers, and we have an email already, so people can can join us. 855-0811-877-285-9348. And the email is noon at indiana.edu. But before we get to that, I just wanted to ask, so we can sort of start at the beginning, yeah. how did you get in, involved in this? How did you get interested in this? Uh, well, for uh, for 10 years, a little bit over 10 years, I wrote a syndicated column on environmental issues for the L.A. Times syndicate. Uh, and the focus was on things that individuals could do. Um, and it was in the course of keeping my ear to the ground that I heard about this green cemetery, this natural cemetery in the United States and South Carolina called the Ramsey Creek Preserve. Uh, bodies went into the ground in basically a wooded setting. Bodies were not embalmed. Uh, caskets did not have to be used, but if they were used, they had to be of uh, easily biodegradable material. Uh, there were no fancy headstones and no no grave markers per se besides flat field stones that served as headstones. It sounded very compelling on paper. So I went down for a visit and uh, took a tour and wandered these woods for you know, the better part of an afternoon and came away uh, very much impressed by this return to an old kind of burial. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I got back home and I began putting that part of the cemetery piece together with other changes in the funeral industry. Cremation was taking off. Uh, I noticed that there was a home funeral movement that was just starting. I saw a new ar- a range of caskets being produced made out of you know, recycled paper and bamboo and wicker. And I felt that the demographics were right. You have the baby boom generation, of which I'm at the tail end. You have the baby boom generation heading into retirement. They bring an environmental consciousness to various stages of their life. So I felt that the time was right, perhaps for a big change within the funeral industry to make it greener. Um, and uh, so that was the genesis of the book. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Let's start with this email. Uh, it's a good introduction to our topic today. It says, looking forward to today's program, we are a local funeral home in Worthington, which has provided green or natural burials here in Bloomington and surrounding counties. Recently, we served the family of an IU professor buried at the Quaker Cemetery. The family selected a poplar casket, no metal fasteners, $800, and washed and clothed their father themselves mm-hmm. in their home. We had a grave hand dug, $300, by a 68-year-old man from Spencer. And when they were ready, provided transportation to the cemetery. Mm -hmm. The body was not embalmed and was always in their care, never going to a funeral home. They could Mm -hmm. find no other funeral provider to serve them in this manner. Indiana is one of only five remaining states which require the funeral director to file the death certificate. The funeral lobby, IFDA, at Indianapolis is responsible for this restriction. Mm -hmm. It is our intention to find a township trustee to grant permission to conduct green burials in one of the cemeteries they are responsible for. In our marketing, we have found in Monroe and surrounding counties, many funeral providers misrepresent what is legally permissible, which is almost anything, and what their policy concerning policy is concerning their care of the dead. For example, many families are falsely informed that there is a state law requiring a vault. Only the cemetery may require a vault, and it must be stated in written bylaws, which you have a right to examine. No bylaws, no enforceability. There are, by the way, over 300 known cemeteries in Monroe County, with less than 10 having any bylaws. To this end, we would encourage all listeners to attend tomorrow's annual meeting of the Bloomington Funeral Consumers Alliance. It is scheduled for 10 a.m. at the St. Thomas Lutheran Church, 3rd Street at Smith Road. We provide a link to the uh, Funeral Consumers Alliance and the FTC funeral rules on our website, which is www.forevercare.org. 
And uh, so that is from Nathan Butler, who is uh, with the Nathan Butler Funeral Home. Yeah. We've written a story or two about Nathan Butler. He does have a different way of uh, doing funerals than most of the funeral directors around here. I'm assuming this might be a good good place to to segue into your – Interaction with the the funeral industry, I would think that that your book would not be particularly popular with them. Um, I have not heard directly from funeral uh, directors uh, themselves, although uh, in various stories that have been written about the book, uh, a reporter will interview local funeral directors or even ones of of some national prominence, and they have all been very uh, somewhat cagey uh, about. Uh, about their response to natural burial, some suggesting that it was either an East Coast trend or a West Coast trend. It was not something for mainstream America uh, and suggesting that green burial was going to be, always going to be sort of a niche thing. Uh, obviously, I don't agree for the reasons that we had talked about, green burial being very much in keeping with a tradition, I think, that has values that still speak to us today. But, uh, you know, talking about the funeral industry, what I think will happen and what I would like to see happen and what I believe is already starting to happen is that we are going to find uh, traditional or standard uh, funeral directors, modern funeral directors, and those more progressive like Nathan Butler will begin adopting or adding green burial services to their their list of, of goods and services. My book was not intended to bash the funeral trade. I believe that funeral directors serve a very valuable and important role in society. Uh, and many of the funeral directors I interviewed in the course of writing my book were outstanding and fine individuals. Uh, what I did want to do was to suggest that uh, some of their practices have an effect that many people don't realize, that embalming, you know, we can describe it in, in various ways, but I do believe that it's a very invasive procedure that many people, if they knew the details, which I which I frankly spell out in the first chapter, uh, would find it very disturbing. And also there is some effect to the environment when you look at the, the, the resources that are diverted to the production of the standard funeral. Mm-hmm. Uh, that said, um, I think what we'll find is I think Americans, as they begin to understand that, as Nathan points out, you, know, uh, you don't necessarily need to have a vault by state law and bombing is not universally required – that there is an opportunity for funeral directors to begin adding these green services, and I think Americans will, will, will start wanting them. And we're seeing that already. I've talked to a number of funeral directors who have begun adding, say, we will refrigerate a body instead of embalming it uh, without any hassle. We have begun offering a broader array of caskets. The the biodegradable casket now is not the cheap, ugly-looking casket that's relegated to a dark corner of the mm-hmm. of the display room. Uh, I've heard from cemeteries now saying uh, we are going to open up a corner of our of our burial ground to green burial. That is, we are not going to require a vault in this section of the cemetery. And I think that as demand for green burial grows, you'll see funeral directors instead of resisting the change. I believe is coming. Uh, will embrace it because that's where the the clients are. You know, what I found so interesting, and I, I have looked at your website, was the the history of embalming, why we even started doing that in this country in the first place, if you want to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, embalming was was not uh, was not a process that that uh, was was a part of burial practices at all, really, until about the time of the Civil War. Uh, we adopted it because, uh, per tradition, in the Civil War. 
uh, the slain were were buried on the battleground. Um, and in the case of the Civil War, most of those battles were held uh, in the southern states. So northern families who wanted to retrieve their dead and bring them home had to go to those battlefields, send emissaries to go to the battlefields, uh, retrieve their dead, and to ship them home via the railroad. Uh, those journeys were thousands of miles and in the summertime took place under very sweltering conditions. Bodies, bodies actively decomposed during the rail ride home and it made for a very unpleasant arrival, uh, which sometimes did not allow for the viewing um, that, that families wanted, the one last look of, at the, of the body before they buried it. So, uh, you know, a, uh, a nascent funeral industry began uh, adopting um, embalming as a way of preserving the, re- the remains for that, for that rail ride home. And, uh, and it worked. Um, bodies showed up in de- decent condition. Uh, some of the early embalmings that we first, uh, you know, Civil War uh, generals and colonels, uh, they, were, uh, they were big news and helped sell this, this new procedure. But it was really the embalming of Abraham Lincoln that sold uh, the public on embalming. Uh, Abraham Lincoln was buried well after he uh, after he was assassinated. His body was embalmed the day after his uh, after his death, and he was placed uh, in a casket that was placed on a train. And uh, it uh, the funeral trip took uh, you know over two we- almost two weeks. Stopped at nearly a dozen cities in the north. At each location, the body was taken off the train. It was put on public display, open casket. People filed by over a million Americans in total, and they saw the face of this embalmed president who looked terrific, uh, probably much better than the, than the bodies that they had laid out in their parlor rooms. And this was you know, well after Lincoln had died. And that, I think, as much as anything, sold the American on this, on this procedure. Fascinating history, yeah, I think. 855 yeah. 811 yeah. 877 And noon at indiana.edu. Our guest today is Mark Harris, a former environmental columnist and author of the book Grave Matters, A Journey Through the Modern Funeral Industry to a Natural Way of Burial. Um, Nathan Butler mentioned the fact that, that there are misconceptions about laws, about Burial. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Expand on what Nathan's point was. You know, we've gone from uh, you know it, it, burial in this country used to be a do-it-yourself affair. Family member they usually died at home and they were taken care of by the family, and the grave was sometimes dug by the family. You were buried sometimes on family property, but uh, you know because of history and changes that we have the rise of this funeral industry, which has taken death care out of the care of the family, out of the bosom of the family, into the funeral home uh, into a care of the stranger. Uh, and as a consequence of that, uh, we have uh, given over some of our uh, – of our. we haven't given over rights. We have given over um, the perception that we don't have any rights anymore to care for our own dead. But in fact, it's still very possible in most places to still wash and dress a body, keep it at home, put it on dry ice. Uh, and as Nathan says, most states, the vast majority of states, allow families to serve as a funeral director, to file the death certificate themselves, um, to transport the deceased to the crematory or to the cemetery. Uh, so I, you know, part of the reason I wrote this book was to say, listen, you don't, you don't need to embalm a body. Mm-hmm. Almost never is embalming required. Uh, you, know, you don't necessarily have to call a funeral director. So I think I, what I wanted to do was to enlighten um, readers to the fact that we still have some very basic rights, 
But, you know, uh, we have assumed, as I assumed, frankly, before I started writing this book, that there were certain things that we had to do. We had to call the funeral director. Um, and that's just because we don't do it anymore. But we still retain a lot of the of the rights that our, you know, our great-grandparents did when it comes do to have, care of the dead. Do you have to call a coroner to get it? I know you need a death certificate for so many legal things after a, a family member dies. Right. Uh, many, many um, companies require a death certificate That's when you're right. closing out that person's affairs. That's right. To whom, uh, whom do you alert and, and say, you know, we need a death certificate? Uh, well, it varies from state to state who these various people are in Pennsylvania where I live. Uh, you know, and it's certainly a lot easier if somebody dies at home you know, if somebody dies at home under the care of a physician uh, and they're in a hospice situation, uh, you know, the f- I, and obviously this is not true in Indiana because a funeral director has to file the death certificate. But in most places, uh, the hospice nurse is allowed to call the hospital, talk to the attending physician and say, listen, you know, uh, you know Rosemary passed away. And uh, the, the family can then file, fill out the top part of the of the death certificate, which is mostly about just basic gen- information, basic information. Yeah. and then the doctor fills out the bottom part, and the death certificate is filed with the local registrar, who then issues the papers, the the, the transport papers, you know, so you can take them to deceased, so you can keep them at home, um, and uh, you know, papers that you would need to bring the body to the crematory. Now, uh, you know, a coroner may get involved. If uh, if there's any question about the cause of death, mm-hmm. um, you know, if somebody dies, uh, drops dead in, in the middle of the street someplace, you know, coroner may be called, an autopsy may be performed. And in those cases, it becomes more difficult, uh, although not impossible for family to take control of the deceased, you know, uh, bring them home or, or what have you. Um, you know, because once you open up a body, it becomes harder to to have a home funeral laying a body on dry ice and such. Mm-hmm. So, so it depends. Um, a doctor may ask a coroner or a medical examiner to get involved, and in some cases, the the uh, the person who issues the death certificate, the local registrar, may be required to alert the coroner uh, or the medical examiner. Sometimes, at the cause of death. Uh, when a death occurs, the coroner or the medical examiner need to show up at the house if it occurred at home just to say everything's okay. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes a phone call suffices. So it really varies. Okay. Now, before we get to that, let, let me ask. Uh, death is not an easy topic for a lot of people to yeah. discuss. So, That's right. And, and when, you, know, you, you have said you know, you're, you're not really trying to be critical of the funeral industry per se. You're just trying to, to let people know what they can do. Do you have any perception or any sense? I mean, I'm thinking if somebody close to me dies, I want somebody else to take care of it. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of the way I am. And yeah. I would guess a lot of people are like that. Do you have any sense yeah. of, of you know, how big a movement this is and how, you know, how common it would be that people would want to take care of, of uh, someone who died at home? Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't want to suggest that if you, if you want to do a green barrel, you have to do it all. That you have to say um, bring somebody home or to have them die, or if they die at home, you have to wash and dress the body uh, that you know if you 've got rural property, you absolutely really should bury somebody on the property 
what I what I try to lay out in the book are the possibilities, and that you can choose to participate in these possibilities to the extent that you're comfortable. So I know many people would not want to, for all the benefits that you may receive from caring for somebody at your home, for washing and dressing the body. As uh, as I follow this family in Texas who do it, they they speak of the tremendous benefits that come from that from that intense engagement with with the deceased uh, after death. Uh, you may still not want to do that, but if you call the funeral home, you know, you might be in a better position to say, listen, as some other families did, all I want you to do is to hold the remains in refrigeration for overnight or for a couple of mm-hmm. days. Or all I want you to do is to dress the body and bring it to the, to, to the church or to the cemetery. Um, or, you know what, I want you to do everything, but I'm going to supply the casket. And I'm going to order it over the internet, and it's going to be sent directly to you. Um, or I've contacted the local carpenter. He's got a casket, and he's going to deliver it tomorrow afternoon. The funeral director is by law legally compelled to accept that casket and cannot charge you a handling fee for doing it. So what I want to suggest in the book is that there are all these possibilities. You don't have to do it all. Uh, but uh, when death comes calling, I think but after reading the book, you have a greater awareness of what's required and what's not required. And you can consider well in advance of the time of death, hopefully, um, to find how deep an engagement you want to have. You make a good point because I think as my husband and I have had these discussions over time, our wishes have changed because we've learned more about what the options are. Um, In fact, we had a discussion after I looked at your website and and we were both kind of like, oh, my gosh, didn't know you could do that. That's a great idea. So I think that um, you really have to think about this again and again over time. Yeah. That's right. All right. We have a phone call. Let's go to Matt. Matt? Hi. This is Matt Mulligan from Nathan Butler Funeral Home. Uh And I wanted people to know specifically that they can participate as little or as much in the service as they wanted. And because we don't have a funeral chapel and we don't have a casket room, uh, a lot of people don't realize all the caskets are made here in Indiana. We can get one in two hours. And because of those overhead uh, considerations, we don't charge even half as much as all the other funeral homes. And I just thought it was important for people to know they can have as little or as much participation. And if they want the funeral director to do all the services at our funeral home, including the uh, professional services, it's less than 3500 And I would encourage everyone to go to the Funeral Consumer Alliance meeting. Thank you very much. All right, Matt. Thanks for your call. Bye. Thanks a lot for the call. 855 and noon at indiana.edu. Back to the phones and Sarah. Sarah? Hi. I have a question, and that is uh, if you cremate or if you bury on your own ground, uh, whatever you've done with the body afterwards, what, what do you need to do to register, or is there any requirement in Indiana to register what you've done with the body or with the ashes or cremains, as they call them in the industry? I hate that. <laughs> what a thoughtful question. <laughs> Uh, well, it's it's interesting, Sarah, that you mentioned cremains. I, f- I first started using that word when I was beginning work on the book until I talked to the president of the Cremation Association of North America who said, we hate that word. It's not a real word. Somebody made it up. We we prefer cremated remains, which uh, – so I started using cremated remains in the book. Uh, I'm not sure with Indiana law, although I think it's probably pretty general uh, – What's important is the disposition of the body as it goes to the crematory. 
Uh, and that is what, uh, at least in many of the states that I have seen, is what's checked off on the death certificate. What you do with the cremated remains after that is uh, is up to you and does not need to be, as I understand it, does not need to be represented anywhere. You can keep those cremated remains in an urn on your uh, on your mantle, which I know many families do for years and uh, and, and never do anything with it. You can uh, you can uh, at least I believe it's true in this state. You can, it's certainly true in Pennsylvania. You can bury those. Cremated cremated remains in your backyard uh, and scatter them in your rose garden or, or what have you without declaring that um, uh, you, you, you have that right. So I don't believe that you need to. We have help. We've, we've just waved another guest into the studio. Okay. Carol Siemens in here Carol, with us. All right. Hi, Carol. Car- Carol's <laughs> with uh, the Bloomington Funeral Consumers Alliance, correct? That That's the, right. The, the correct name of the, of the group. Yep. Carol's also a lawyer, so you can probably talk about some of these <laughs> legal, <laughs> legal things. Well, uh, what I wanted to point out is that there is a form available. It's at the health department. You can get it at the Monroe County Health Department. Uh, if you uh, want to scatter cremains on property that's owned um, privately, that's fine as long as you have the consent of the owner. But there's a form that you can complete to uh, register with the health department. And um, I think the filing fee is something like $3. It's very minimal. But that just lets them know uh, that there has been a body scattered. The cremains have been scattered at that site. Um, It's also helpful for genealogy purposes. I mean, some people, I know that's not a concern to everybody, but some people like to just know um, the disposition of the ashes. So there is a form that you can use. Okay. Thanks for for running into the room to help us answer <laughs> that right. question. No problem. We appreciate it. It's uh, about halfway through the program, so we're going to take a short break. Uh, our guest today is Mark Harris, a former environmental columnist and author of the book Grave Matters, A Journey Through Modern Funeral Industry to a Natural Way of Burial. And Carol Seaman has joined us. We'll be right back. You're listening to Noon Edition. You're listening to Noon Edition on member-supported WFIU. Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home office and garage, using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2 owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. And from South Dunn Street Project, represented by Brian Lappin Real Estate, classic bungalow-inspired architecture in the Bryan Park neighborhood of Bloomington, www.southdunnstreet.info. The Bloomington Rotary Club presents four scholarships to qualified graduating college-bound seniors in Monroe County. Applications available at the high school principals or counselor's offices. And the deadline for submitting those applications is today, April 27th. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with Mary Catherine Carmichael and our two guests today. Mark Harris is here. He's the author of Grave Matters, A Journey Through the Modern Funeral Industry to a Natural Way of Burial. And Carol Seaman is with us. She's uh, with the Bloomington Funeral Consumers Alliance. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. Or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. Carol, since you joined us a little late, you've been listening to the program. And as we said, you're, you're an attorney. 
and you know more, probably more, I'm sorry, Mark, but probably more about the specific state no, laws, local, local laws absolutely. in Indiana. Um, is there any, any clarification, anything you think we need to clarify at this point? Well, there were, there were two things that uh, Mark touched upon, and, and he's right that there are distinctions between a person dying under the care of a physician where the death is expected uh, in, you know, momentarily, and uh, if the person dies uh, accidentally, maybe in a car accident. Uh, those would be the two, uh, the two distinctions. If you die under the care of a physician, the physician signs off on the death certificate. If the person dies unexpectedly, the coroner gets involved, and that's how you would get into the system. And the coroner uh, in Monroe County, Dave Toomey, explained to me that what they do is they have a list of funeral homes that they rotate. So, because somebody had a question. Um, that they asked me, how do you get into the system? How do they know where to take you? And they uh, rotate which funeral home they go to. So that was one thing I wanted to point out. The other is you were talking about family-directed funerals. And, you know, some people like that. Some people don't. Uh, in Indiana, uh, we're one of five states uh, in the union that uh, require a funeral director to be involved at all uh, levels. They have to uh, get the the death certificate. It can't be released to the Family, they they have to be involved at every step, so that's it's kind of an interesting mm-hmm. situation. Okay, but that doesn't necessarily mean, though, Carol, that you can't have a home funeral that is a funeral at home. A, a funeral director could still be involved with the paperwork and right. You right. can you can pay the funeral home, the funeral director for each of those uh, services that's right. that they would explain in their price list. But as far as wanting to uh, get the the uh, death certificate yourself, uh, have the body at home, do the whole thing yourself, uh, you have to have them involved and you have to pay them to be involved. Okay. We've got uh, emails piling up. We also have one call I'll get to before we go to the email. Steve, go ahead. Yes, I have a quick question. I just got in, so I don't know if you approached this topic, but I wonder if you're both authors or either one could address this. A while ago, well, it's quite a while ago, Jessica, Jessica Mitford wrote a book called The American Way of Death. And I don't know if your authors here have read that, but could no, they comment on the yeah. uh, how things were then and how they are now and how much things have changed in terms of the funeral industry, et cetera, and how much got better and how much has gotten worse? Uh, the the interesting thing about Jessica Mitford's book is that it was uh, it was an immediate bestseller when it came uh, came out. Uh, right. They immediately went back to press, uh, and I think uh, Jessica Mitford deserves a lot of credit on many fronts. But I think that she helped spur the rise in cremation. But when you look at what's happened in the funeral industry, say up until her death in the late 1990s, there was very little change. Mm-hmm. Uh, for reasons that we talked about a little bit earlier, I think that if she had lived long enough, she would see the changes in the funeral industry that she was hoping for happen via green burial. Uh, I think that uh, she would be very pleased to find that there is this burgeoning home funeral movement, mm-hmm. that there's a greater awareness that people can buy coffins at, uh, at inexpensive prices over the Internet, mm-hmm. uh, that there's a lot, there are a lot more avenues for family control than there were in her time. Right. Uh, you have the rise of the, uh, of the natural burial grounds. There are half a dozen of these in the United States now, which were not, uh, which were not there when Jessica Mitford was, uh, was still around. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, JFK Jr.'s a burial at sea, scattering at sea, uh, uh, prompted a spike in uh, sea scatterings, and that happened in 1999. So the things I think that she was hoping for, the changes that she wanted, uh, really had not uh, reached the level that she was hoping for 
in her time, but we're beginning to see them now. Why now? Well, again, getting back to what we talked about earlier, I do believe part of it uh, is due to uh, this this baby boom generation, I think the demographics are right. Mm-hmm. The baby boom generations who grew up reading Jessica Mitford in high school and right. in college are now uh, at the time of life when they're beginning to consider their mortality mm-hmm. and they're beginning to literally look outside the box when death comes calling. <laughs> and yeah. unlike you know Jessica Mitford's time, the alternatives are out there. Yeah, excellent. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to reading your book. Well, thank you very All much. Right. All right, thanks, thanks. Mark. Carol? Okay. Well, I also wanted to add that I think Jessica Mitford's book, The American Way of uh, Dying, has also helped um, spur on a consumer movement. And at her time, there were more memorial societies where people would get together, set up a society where they would negotiate with uh, maybe a preferred provider for their membership. Um, That has also led to the Funeral Consumers Alliance movement. Uh, We are just a local chapter of a national organization. Um, But these consumer movements are paying more attention to uh, how things are priced. What are your alternatives? Mm-hmm. And, you know, we don't uh, advocate any one particular thing. We're just trying to get information to people. So her book uh, explained how this how this is priced, what's going on. Uh, uh, and since that time, this led to the um, FTC having a general funeral rule. So uh, there's a general price list that every funeral home has. They have to give it to you. They have to list everything, all the separate parts, what you need to do, what they require. Um, they have a basic fee. They have to state that up front. So I think her book really led to a better understanding on the part of consumers about what's involved. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's get started on some of these emails. Um, the first one begins, what are the legal requirements for a funeral in Indiana concerning burial on private lands? Uh, my understanding of this area is that uh, if there is a cemetery already on the land, for instance, somebody has one of the old farms maybe mm-hmm. that had an old family a cemetery on that property, that if you work through a funeral director, uh, you can have that uh, a body buried in that cemetery. But again, it, have to, it would have to be with the consent of the owner if it's not that owner's family. Mm-hmm. Um, but you would have to go through the funeral system through a director or have all the proper um, transit permits and everything. Um, as far as burying, just burying somebody in your backyard, um, I think that's more of a problem. Okay. Not- well, na- well, nationally, I know that uh, there are various places, uh, you know, uh, where it's possible zoning regulations might allow for burial on private property on what they call private family cemetery if it's in a some rural or agricultural designation. How that actually plays out in Indiana, um, you know, depends. Although I would say generally it's almost – in all the places that I have, uh, I have been and the people I've talked to around the country, uh, I have yet to find a, say, urban area or suburban area where burial uh, on private property is permitted. And the few cases I know of where people have attempted it it's launched a, a hue and cry, uh, which has prompted local zoning officials to promptly zone it out of out of the possible. Okay, and kind of a follow up to that, but a separate email. It asks, "Why were vaults developed? Are there any concerns with burying a person in a wooden casket on rural property, and then the property is sold?" Uh, well, vaults came about in the late 1800s, originally to deter grave robbers. Um, yeah. 
bodies, uh, you know, grave robbers would go and disinter freshly buried remains in order to supply some of our uh, early medical schools. And that practice went up as long as 1920s uh, until uh, various local governments cracked down on it. So the burial vault was a way to ensure that uh, grave robbers could not get at the remains. Um, it ended up, you know, once uh, once that practice was cracked down on, you didn't need the burial vault. Um, so why do we still have it? Well, uh, funeral uh, cemeteries liked having it because uh, if you just have a plain casket, uh, a wood casket degrades over time and it creates a depression in the ground that then needs to be filled in. It mars the uniformity of the landscape and, frankly, it, uh, it's harder for cemeteries to maintain the property. So that's why many cemeteries – there's no state law that uh, – state laws that require vaults uh, – that I know of on uh, in cemeteries, it's usually the cemetery itself that requires them. Um, the other part of your question was: um, Are there any concerns with burying a person in a wooden casket on rural property, and then the property is sold? Well, I think again that's one of the reasons they have that reporting form, so that people know there would be a duty to disclose what what you've done with the property. Right. Okay. But there is, but there are some other interesting considerations. Uh, some you do have to disclose uh, the fact that you have buried uh, somebody there, and depending on the property, that may affect the property's value mm-hmm. to, to a perspective resaleability per, yeah. perspective buyer. Also, uh, you know, some of the problems that some families have run into is what do you do when you sell the property? Is, is do the future owners then, quote, respect that property? Do they maintain the grave or do they just let it become abandoned? In some cases, uh, when it uh, – I know in some states where a private cemetery has been abandoned uh, after a certain number of years, the current owners are allowed to have the remains disinterred and, and, and put someplace else. So there is some concern there when you bury somebody on your private pro- property. Okay, our phone number is 855-0811-877-285-9348 and noon at indiana.edu. Uh, the phones, uh, we have a, one call. It's Andrew. Go ahead. Hello. Hi, go ahead. Hey, um, just to kind of preempt myself, uh, I am a manufacturer of cremation urns. Uh-huh. Um, along your idea of green burial, um, I've always been in favor of that. Uh, we've been in this industry for some time, and I guess it's ironic that I would prefer to be buried than cremated. But um, <laughs> uh, you know, you, yes, you know, I think that does qualify yeah, as ironic. Sure, you, you know, want to advertise that? <laughs> you know, people have for years. We battled in, in the late '80s about people saying, "Oh, we need to cremate. We need to save our green space." And I think what people are starting to realize is that there's more green space as a result of burial. Uh, And you look in Europe where people go to cemeteries and they picnic and things like that, and they treat that green space as as a park. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a – that is kind of beginning to make that turn. Uh, One point I did want to make that one of the things that we've discussed within the industry and that uh, we've noticed that I've noticed, and particularly since the early 80s, and this kind of touches on Jessica's book, um, is that the funeral director has really shifted from being a tradesman to a professional. True. And that when we talk about, well, you got to have a funeral director to do this and this and this and this, and you have to pay for that, that is along the same lines of having a medical doctor have to do those same things. And here's someone that's gone to school 
to specialize in this, and and that's what they do. And when I've taught in in uh, schools, I've you know said you really need to sell your license more than you do anything else. And I think that's something where society is struggling with is seeing them move from being that tradesman to a professional within society. Hmm. Well, it's true that uh, the the original funeral directors, the original undertakers, they traced their origins back to the coffin maker. Mm-hmm. It was the mm-hmm. coffin maker who made the coffin, and then you know, family said, "Well, since you're making the coffin, can you contact the, the you know the minister, and maybe you can contact the livery uh, to make sure that there's a cart and a horse available. And while you're at it, can you contact the sexton to, be, to dig the grave?" Uh, so it was through those leaps that the that the that the coffin maker becomes the undertaker who then becomes part of this larger industry mm-hmm. and becomes a director. You call the newspaper too. Yeah. Uh, and the call barber. The, call the newspaper. Let's not leave out the right. barber. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, thank you. Andrew, thanks a lot for the call. Not a problem. All right, we thank appreciate you. it. All right, we love our callers. We do. They always have good information. Yeah. That's good. Um, okay, we have email. Yeah, we do. A couple more. Um, and and I'm, this is great because we're just now on the topic of cremation. It says, you mentioned cremation earlier. How does this fit in with other methods? Are there different ways of arranging and going about this? Uh, if I understand uh, the question, you know, is, it, is it what you can do with cremated remains? Um, you know, I think that you – know, I've laid the book out into generally chapters that go from – Less green to more green. I think that burial, you know, on on private rural property or in one of these natural cemeteries with maybe the body buried in a shroud, uh, and no chemical embalming of the remains, uh, you know, with a hole that a family member digs uh, himself. I think that stacks up pretty green. Cremation uses, you know, I lay this out in the book. Uses resources, natural gas, generates some pollution, including mercury uh, pollution. Uh, so it's probably one of the less green uh, of the of the options. But certainly, when you compare it to the outfitting of the standard funeral, I think stacks up pretty well. But once you get once you have cremated a body, um, you then have the you have these ashes, these cremated remains, which you can then scatter at sea, which you can bury on land as a soil amendment um, that uh, that you can turn into. One of the chapters looks at these reef balls, which are concrete forms about a waist high that look like igloos somebody's punched holes into. You add your cremated remains to the concrete that forms one of these, uh, creating this memorial reef ball. It dries over the period of a month. You bring it out on a boat, a towboat, uh, into the Atlantic or the Gulf of Mexico, and then you drop it onto established reef site there, where it becomes uh, habitat for fish. And they've done some amazing studies to show that these reef balls uh, truly do regenerate life on the, on the seafloor. Uh, you have a, a lot more marine life when you have one of these there. So for people who are ocean lovers, sea lovers, marine life lovers, uh, it really is quite a, a natural way to go. Well, there's some interesting um, things that I've found on the Internet just looking at what people do with cremains. You can... Uh, Google cremation, and you'll find there are companies that will turn your loved one's carbon ashes into a diamond-like substance. You'll find um, they'll make, um, like a glass blower will make a design that has the ashes in it. There's jewelry. There's all sorts of things um, that people are doing. It's 
pretty amazing. It is amazing. Wow. Um, I want to know who thinks this up, really. <laughs> <laughs> I, want, I wanted to ask about, the, about cremation because I, I was looking at your site and I looked at, uh, at your blog. And one of the posts yeah. on your blog was coming to a crematory near you, mercury filters. And that's you mentioned right. mercury oh, pollution. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, this is a little bit of a surprise. I mean, we all can assume that uh, cremating a body or incinerating a body at 1,800 degrees for two hours does, you know, not only consume resources but generate some pollution. One of the pollutants, the major pollutant of concern is mercury. Mercury is a major component of the dental amalgams or the silver fillings in the teeth that fill up many of our baby boomers. Uh, and, and mercury uh, does not disappear when it's, when it's incinerated. Uh, a body that has these mercury fillings, the mercury in those fillings is, is vaporized in the course of cremation. It goes up the smokestack. It's carried by prevailing winds in the atmosphere and then is deposited on land and water. Uh, and uh, if it's deposited on water in lakes and streams, it can be taken up by fish. Uh, if we consume those fish, we consume part of that mercury. Mercury is a toxic metal, uh, and consumption of even small amounts of mercury have been shown to cause developmental delays um, and developmental problems in children. So, uh, in fact, the government in the last couple of years, the EPA, has begun seriously cracking down on mercury. Uh, cremation, you know, when you compare it to, say, the, the amount of mercury that's uh, produced and then released by coal-burning power plants in the United States is very small. The AP, so as a consequence, the EPA does not have any requirements that crematoria uh, limit their mercury emissions. But still, I think that uh, you know, giving it a, an increased awareness of mercury deposition, that you're going to find uh, mercury filters come to, to uh, crematoria in the United States as they are happening in, in the UK. The government there is requiring that uh, uh, crematoria outfit their cre uh, cremation units with um, mercury filtering equipment sufficient to cut mercury uh, emissions by 50% by the year 2012. 70% of the population is, bare, is cremated there, so it's in some ways it's a, a bigger big deal. issue. Yeah. Yeah. We, we have a phone call, so let's go to Thomas. Thomas? Afternoon. Uh, Hi. Hi. I'm a designated donor. And I was curious as to what happens to the body parts that uh, they don't use uh, when they're done with getting what they want. That's a good question, Thomas, and it's one, frankly, that I that I can't answer. It's not anything I address in the book uh, because, uh, although I think that uh, donating body parts is certainly a, a you know sort of a wonderful legacy. It was I didn't fit within the scheme of a natural return for me, where you return a body to the elements. So I, I can't really say. Maybe Carol has a better idea. Uh, I think it depends on what which way you're talking about. If you're doing a whole body donation, such as to the IU School of Medicine, for instance, um, they make those arrangements with you at the time. Uh, I know I had a family member who did that at another university in another state. And they already knew ahead of time what they would do as a cremation, and they had a large memorial service for all the families who were involved, and they took care of all the details, all the expense, oh. and they had the service. They um, interred the ashes there at the um, school, at the university on the grounds. But each each uh, university would be different. I mean, it would depend on what their arrangements are with you. Uh, I know in many cases they will allow you to... Um, you know, make plans to get the the cremains back, for instance, but you'd have to look at each individual institution. If you're talking about donating just certain parts of your body, maybe 
um, corneal, corneas, yeah, yeah, corneal implants or something like that, um, the body's still there. So what my understanding, and maybe somebody listening could correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding would be the hospital has your body. They would follow whatever you had already set up. It would be up to your family members to say um, which funeral home they wanted to be involved um, and go on with the maybe either your um, final request that you had made or your plans, if you'd done any pre-planning, whatever, um, they would follow what you wanted to do because the body they would still have the body there. They just wouldn't have the certain parts that you had donated. Okay. All right. Thanks, Thomas. Thanks a lot for the call. And here's a nice follow-up to that. This is an email that came in. It says, my Indiana driver's license indicates I'm willing to donate organs upon death. How does this complicate the options concerning burial? Does green burial still work under those circumstances? Uh, that's that's a good question. Um, when uh, And frankly, part of the reason I didn't include it in the book is I know that if a body is brought to, say, a medical uh, school where your body is going to be donated and used for for medical research, uh, I believe the body is embalmed. It's a slightly different process. It's a deeper embalming than what the funeral director does. Um, So that's why I didn't didn't include it. Um, What it means for green burial, I know that uh, Ramsey Creek Preserve, that first uh, natural cemetery in South Carolina, I believe this is the case. Uh, in those cases, they will actually accept about that sort of embalmed body uh, that's used post-medical um, school dissection uh, for, for burial there um, because, of, because of, I think, the, the spirit and mm-hmm. intent. But generally, they don't allow embalmed bodies to, uh, to, be, to be interred. So formaldehyde is used in embalming, I assume, still? Uh, yes, and, and formaldehyde is the, the, one of the main ingredients, one of the main preservatives in, uh, in embalming fluids. So wouldn't there be a concern about that leaching into the groundwater? You know, that's a really interesting question. I spent some time researching that, and I say, uh, you know, it's, a, it's obviously it's a, it's a toxic chemical. It's a, it's a chemical that's regulated both by EPA and by, uh, by OSHA. And uh, its effect on the environment, frankly, is a little bit unclear. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be the case that uh, much of the formaldehyde dissipates naturally in the environment. Uh, and the studies that I found that have actually looked at it, at this issue, have been few, uh, but have not found formaldehyde to be a significant contribution to the environment leaching from, from, from bodies. Uh, I think more research needs to be done, but uh, it's certainly adding a potentially toxic chemical to the environment. Um, the, uh, the other thing I'd say about formaldehyde, though, what is clear is its, is its toxic effect on the funeral industry personnel, uh, and that's why OSHA regulates it. Um, when you look at studies uh, looking at uh, embalmers' mortality, you find that uh, funeral home directors and embalmers specifically have higher rates of certain kinds of cancers of the throat, of the, of the trachea, uh, nasal cancers and such, uh, presumably from their exposure to formaldehyde on a regular basis. Carol, could you uh, go through the the opportunities for people to see Mark this weekend and, and uh, you know, what's happening with, with your annual meeting? Yes. <clears throat> Excuse me. We've, we've invited Mark uh, to come to Bloomington to talk about his book for our, the annual meeting of our organization, which the the full name is Funeral Consumers Alliance of Bloomington, Indiana, Inc. It's a long name. Uh, But Mark will be available today from 530 to 630 in the atrium at Fountain Square. 
Howard's uh, will have books available for book signing or just to meet him and talk to him. Uh, our meeting, the annual meeting, um, is tomorrow morning, uh, 10 o'clock at St. Thomas Lutheran Church. They're allowing us to use their facilities. So 10 to 12, um, that's at 3800 East 3rd at the corner of Smith and 3rd. So from 10 to 12, uh, Mark is going to present um, his book. Okay. Now, in the last minute we have, I know that, that you, your organization has some ideas for trying to push natural or encourage natural burials. Yes. Well, scattering garden? Yeah, that's mm-hmm. what we're working on right now. Uh, we've been working with Area 10 Agency on Aging. Uh, they have some land available, and we've set up a group between the two of our organizations to look into the best way to make that an option for people in Monroe County. Mm-hmm. Okay, and we are out of time. So I, I want to thank you both for being here today. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Yeah, thanks to, to Mark Harris and thanks to Carol Seaman. And for Mary Catherine Carmichael, producer Catherine Hageman, and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and The Herald Times.